All right. <clears throat> Let's do a quick test, if we can, uh, in this house to see who are the people that have yeah, My kids children think I'm who... really cool. You know how cool my kids think I am? You know what their nickname? Hello? What was that? What on earth was that? No, okay. <clears throat> very, very strange world we live in. Let's do a quick test. Um, for, all, for all parents, what is the number one word that all parents have used more than any other word? I'll give you a hint, two hints. Number one, it's two letters, and number two, your kids hate it. Ready, go. Ha-ha, <laughs> unified and universal. Number one, we've got a lot of parents in the house. Number two, they are good parents because they use the beautiful word no, N-O. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about you, I say no a lot. And I say no a lot more than I thought I would say no when I had no children. It seems like I'm saying no not only a lot, but I'm saying no to things that I never thought in a universe that I should have to say no to, such as no, you cannot lick the toilet bowl. Or no, you cannot give your sibling a concussion because it's fun. Right? Or no, you can't have every toy in the house and leave your brother or sister with nothing. Or no, it's not okay to run around a parking lot full of vehicles that are driving. Right? My, my, my son would run around on a freeway if he could. Uh, if I ever have to get him out at a rest stop, I feel like a leash might be necessary just to prevent him from running into oncoming turnpike traffic. But we say no all the time. I, I saw this, um, this bit by a comedian, uh, one of my favorite comedians, Tim Hawkins. Uh, if you don't know him, he's a, he's a great Christian comedian. I can't recommend him to you enough. I saw this a few years ago, and as I was writing this, it just felt appropriate enough that I want to share just a very small little chunk of it with you this morning. So if you are, uh, if you are parents, you will appreciate this. Yeah, my kids think I'm really cool. You know how cool my kids think I am? You know what their nickname is for me at home? Dr. No. Dr. No. You know why? Because I give them a lot of no. A lot of kids get too much yes. I give them no. I call it the gift of no. Parents, it's easy. Daddy, can I have that? No. Can I have the keys to the car? Let me check here. Uh, no. Can I go over there? Nope. Can I spend the night over there? Hmm, this old man, he said no. <laughs> Get creative, man. Eeny, meeny, miny, no. Now you're just somebody that I used to. No. <laughs> there are so many fun ways to say no. <laughs> Saying no to your kids is an integral part of raising kids that are responsible, independent, functional, contributing members of society, right? We have to say no a lot as parents because we understand that our kids are inherently sinful beings. And one of the things that happens if we don't say no a lot is that that sinfulness, that natural inbred kind of lean towards things away from God just starts to take root more and more. And so we have to fight it. We have to say no when we want to say yes. Now, I do think it's probably a little bit wrong as parents to enjoy it quite as much as, as our dear friend Tim. And so I, I, want, I want to recommend against that, although I will say this week we had a beautiful, beautiful enjoyment of no. Um, we, had, we had a finished dinner and our, our son refused to eat. And so we told him if he doesn't finish his dinner, we're like, we're having ice cream and he won't get ice cream. And so we, we didn't finish his dinner and we pulled out ice cream and we were eating in front of him. And you've never seen the fury of another human being 
until you've seen a four-year-old have his parents eat ice cream right in front of him and enjoy it. And I'm not going to lie, I, I enjoyed it a little more than I probably should have. Like, it was a calculated thing. We didn't do it to be vindictive. We did it because it should sting, because that means next time he'll, he'll learn. But I, I enjoyed it a little more than I should have. But generally, <clears throat> we shouldn't enjoy this idea of saying no to our kids. I think sometimes when we think about God and the way that God operates, we kind of think about God the way that you know, Tim operates as a no parent. I think we think about the Lord as, as this, this, this force, this creator that, that made us for his purposes, and he loves to just sit in heaven and say no to us a lot. Right? Whatever joy we find in this world, the things that we love to do that, that help us, that bring us happiness, there's so much in this world that makes people happy, and we just got to let it go and live and let live, and, and, and God says no. And it seems like he says no an awful lot. And so we have this depiction sometimes in the world of God as a no man. He created the world, he set it in the motion, and then he just likes to tell us how to live and what to do, and more importantly, what we can't do, right? Every time I find something that brings me happiness, there is God saying no. And that's, that's really the furthest from the truth of how God operates. And so this morning, I, I want to look at our passage, and it's a quite familiar one to, to many people who have been part of the church for some time. Uh, it's the passage where we get the Lord's Prayer, right? So if you've grown up in the church, you probably know the Lord's Prayer by heart. You can argue about whether it's debts or debtors or trespasses or trespassed against us and all those kinds of things, but you've known the Lord's Prayer. Well, this is the passage in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And that's what we get. We get the, the you know, that, that's how we get the, our Father who art in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so forth. So this is the kind of the origin of it. But we learn a lot more from this passage than just the Lord's prayer that we recite every so often. Our elders close with this prayer every time we have a, a session meeting. Although after today, I wonder if we should continue to do that. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. All the elders are paying attention now. All right, so let's, let's take a moment and just read through Luke uh, 11, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to discover, number one, yes, some things about prayer that could help us, some ways that we could learn to pray more or pray better or grow in our prayer life. But more importantly, in this passage, we learn a lot about the character of our Father, the God of the universe, and, and how he likes to respond to prayer and how he likes to engage with prayer when we do pray. That's the bigger takeaway from today. So let's stand together. Uh, if you're new, if you've not been here for a while, one of the things we like to do is just stand for the reading of, of God's word, um, just as a reverence, because my words can be fun sometimes, but his words are holy and far more important than my own. So this is from Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Notice there's some things absent here from the normal prayer. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, of his impudence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. This is very confusing, and we're going to unpack it. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What, whether, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So, um, you know, this, this passage and its counterparts in the Gospels are obviously, yes, where we get the Lord's Prayer, and, and we learn uh, kind of what should be in our prayers, who we should pray to, and how persistent our, our prayers should be. And so we actually learn something here from Jesus before he ever opens his mouth and teaches them how to pray. Right, that's the, the key. If you look back at verse 1, the disciples come asking Jesus to teach them prayer, and they come and they find him right after a time that he himself was actually praying. So they're presumably watching Jesus pray, right? which might be awkward if you just have somebody over in the, in the riverbank or wherever praying, and you're standing there kind of waiting for him to, you know, amen, and get up, and then they ask him, hey, um, will you teach us how to pray like that? And so that's the, the first thing that we notice is he himself is praying and they are watching him pray. And more important than watching him pray, they are watching what he's doing in his public ministry. And they are hearing things like, I do nothing of my own. All I do is by the power of the Father who I pray to in heaven. Right? And so they are hearing Jesus say, I don't have any power of my own as the son. Everything I do, all my wisdom, all my power, all my ability to do all the things I do comes from this, this father of mine, and he's the one I'm praying to, and they're watching the miraculous things that he's doing, the way that he engages with the, the Pharisees and all the other people and the lowest of low and the highest of, of high in these incredibly wise ways, the way that no one seems to be able to trip him up because of the wisdom that he has and the way he's been healing miraculously people person after person after person. They are watching what Jesus is doing and then hearing that he's doing it by the power of this father, of the God that he's praying to. And so they want what he has. They want to be able to do the things that Jesus is doing. They want to be able to do that just like him. And so they're saying, Lord, teach us to pray like that. They're essentially saying, man, whatever he's doing is working. We got to learn how to do it his way because <laughs> we don't pray like that. And we don't seem to have that kind of power and wisdom from the Father to, to proclaim the kingdom in the way that he is and to heal people in the name of God the way that he does. There's something different about the way that Jesus is doing things, right? And in these days, to ask somebody to train how to pray wasn't very unique, right? Most people followed a rabbi of some sorts, especially if you were going to be going into religious service, you would be the understudy or sit under rabbis for, for countless years and, and follow them and train with them. And one of the things that would happen is you kind of knew who the person's rabbi was by the way that they did things, right? Kind of like if you went and looked at the three or four people that have mentored my preaching over the years, you would hear a lot of them in me because I've sat under them, right? 
We, we take on some of the mannerisms and personalities and priorities and ways of speaking and the way that we kind of put things together and just, just personality types. Some of this stuff transfers over us. Whatever profession you're in, there's a chance you're doing it in the way that some of your mentors did it. Right? If you're the boss of a company, you've sat under some powerful people who have run companies and you've picked up what to do and not to do from them. And so it's the same way with rabbis. You could tell who your rabbi was by the way that you prayed because each rabbi had kind of their own flavor, their own way of doing things. And so they are asking simply their rabbi to teach them how to pray. Right? But with Jesus, it was different. He didn't pray like other rabbis did. His prayers were far more intimate and filled with a depth that they had never seen before, right? Whatever he was asking for of the Father was obviously given to him all the time because they saw all this work, and so they beg him, we want to learn to connect in the same way that you do, right? And so he teaches them. And it's important to note that I, I don't think Jesus meant for this prayer to be recited necessarily as often or as rigidly as we recite it. Right, the Lord's Prayer, I don't think when Jesus taught this, he was saying, like, this is the prayer that you should pray. I think, I think rather what he's giving us is a, is a template. And it says, whenever you pray to your Father in heaven, kind of pray in these ways. These are the things that ought to undergird the way you pray. So let's just look at them all really quick. The first thing he says is, Father, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed just means holy. Right? It's a King James term that we like to carry over even if you use a new version of, of the Bible that's a little more modern. So he's saying, start every prayer with this. Father, holy is your name. Right? And that's new to them. This idea of calling God Father, that's not something that they would have done before. There's times in the Old Testament, there's about 13, 14 times where the, the phrase Father shows up to talk about God, the Creator, but it's never personal. It's never like Father, Daddy. It's always like a Father of Nations. Right? Like Abraham talks about God being the father of Israel, but he never talks about him being Abraham's father. Right? So this, God wasn't somebody that they address on personal, intimate terms. As a matter of fact, for most of the Old Testament, they wouldn't really say the name of God out loud. They, instead, you would hear them hear him say Yahweh, which is, which is Hebrew for I am. So whenever you refer to God, we don't call him by his name because we don't even deserve to, to call him by his name. We don't, we're not that close to him. He is distant and holy and, and set apart, so we'll simply call him I am. Not I was, not I will be, not I once wasn't and now I am, but just always. He always has been, he always is, he always will be, I am. Right? And so when, they, when he says, when you start to pray, here's how I want you to start. Father, hallowed be thy name. You're saying, well, well, wait a minute. Call him father? Like, well, yes. Because in the kingdom that I am ushering in, God isn't distant anymore. Because of the work I will do on the cross in just a few short years, what will happen is that, that you, will, you will draw to God in closeness. Your sins are forgiven. You are restored in a, in a right relationship. And he will be your father. And you will be like his children. There is an intimacy that you get to have. Right? I don't know if you've noticed, but every time I, I pray, you know, when Jesus gets down on his knees, every time I pray, I, I address him as my father because he is, because I'm the, the son of man. And you also, through me, will get to be his children and call him father. So yeah, you address him as father in the most intimate of ways. You get to talk to him the same way you talk to your own dad on earth. Probably even more. And more deeply and more intimately. Right? So that's the first. Now, obviously, hallowed be thy name. Um, he's still God. 
right? right? We don't just get to think of him as our daddy, but he's, he is the holy set-apart God of the universe who created all things and by whom all things move and live and have their being. And so, of course, you should start by addressing him with the intimacy of Father, but then acknowledging that, yes, he is holy above all holy things. There is no one more set-apart than the Lord God, our Father, right? So that's how we start. God has been holy to them. Next, he gives them a reminder to proclaim that holiness. And then he says, the next thing you should pray is, your kingdom come, which is an awesome prayer. This is the one we memorize because this is the prayer that you pray when you don't know what else to pray. Have you ever been in a situation where life is just so down where you you don't even know how to pray for what's going on? Maybe you, you lost a, a loved one or someone you know did and you're sitting across from them and it's just, you don't have the words, you don't know what to ask God for. If that's ever been the case or ever is the case, the best thing you can do is just to say, God, your will be done. Right? There's never a bad time to ask for God's will to be done. If you don't know what to ask for, that's a great thing to ask for. And so Jesus instructs them to do just that. He says, ask that. Say, your kingdom come. It communicates the submission to the fact that God is better and wiser than you and knows best for you. The request isn't give me what I want, but rather, God, give me what you think is best, what you think I should have, whether that's in line with what I want or not. Right? It's a, the, the your kingdom come piece of the Lord's prayer is one of the most submissive things that we can pray because we're saying, Lord, you're, I have these wants and desires and things that I think are important and plans that I want to make, but in the end, listen, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? And that, that your will part is, is added later, but it's essentially saying the same thing. Whatever you want to see happen, that's, that's what I want to pray for to have happen. Right? And so Jesus tells them, pray this, your kingdom come. Next, he says to pray for their daily bread. Uh, And and it's not necessarily, you know, we like to think of this as like a provision of physical needs. Uh, Our our daily bread isn't really just about food. Uh, It's about anything that we might need in that day. So when you pray, give me this day my daily bread, that daily bread might be a measure of peace that surpasses any of your ability. It might be a measure of patience. Maybe you have a, you're going into the office this day and you know what you're walking into and you know that the, the likelihood that you're going to go off on somebody is pretty high. And so you're just like, give me my daily bread. I, I, need a, I need a dose of patience today that is beyond my own, that is divine in nature, right? So th- this request for daily bread, it's, it's meant to be more than just food, right? It could be perseverance or peace or patience or, yes, provision. Give me what I need to get by. They'll give me the fancy house, but a roof over my head, right? I would love not to be homeless. I would love to be able to feed my family, my children, my spouse, myself. We pray for our daily bread. The second thing about this that's weird is that he asks us to pray for our daily bread, I don't know about you, but I I like to pray, if I got to pray the way I wanted to, I like to pray the same way that people have corporate staff meetings. Like, my, I'm, a, I'm a full-blown right brain guy, and so my ideal is, like, I would love to get up on Mondays at, like, I don't know, 
you know, maybe the first hour into my workday after I've answered some emails and kind of see the lay of the land and the, the week ahead. And I'd like to have one prayer with God, like a, like a weekly staff meeting. I'm like, all right, God, here's all my needs. Now go. See you next week. Right? But that's not what the Lord wants from us. Do you think the Lord is capable of providing for more than our daily need? Like God is fully able to think more than one day at a time. As a matter of fact, God right now has plans in motion to provide for your needs that are, that are going to arise one, two, three, four, five decades from now. Right? There's things that are happening that are, that are going to be the cascading effect of providing for a need that you will have 20 years from today. So God is always thinking ahead and planning ahead, but he asks us to ask for our daily bread, not our weekly, monthly, or annual bread. And the reason I think he does it is because it's not so much about his ability to provide for us. He knows what we need, right? But he wants us to engage with him daily. I think the goal here and why Jesus says, ask for your daily bread is because he wants a consistency. God here is after intimacy with his people. He wants you to come each day and acknowledge that you need him. That this day isn't going to happen without his provision and to ask for what it is that you need in that day, right? A lot of us could have weekly prayers. Right? I've actually adapted this in, in personal and professional world as well. I don't, I don't, we don't have staff meetings. We, we have daily check-ins. I spend the first couple minutes you know, here every single day when I come in, sitting in Shauna's office going, well, what's going on? That's what God wants from us in our devotional life to him as well. He wants us to check in all the time, to get used to it. And what happens is if we do that, if we start to check in more frequently, if we're praying daily for our needs, inevitably we, we grow in intimacy with him. You go from just asking for your daily bread to start to having conversations that are far more intimate and, and filled with depth. Following our, our daily bread, he asks us to pray for forgiveness of sins. And that might seem obvious to us, but, but it, seems, it seems a little strange because one of the promises of the gospel is that when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, that, it, that our sins are paid for. Right? Both those we have are committing and those we will commit in the future. The Lord covers it. The, the, the day that you became a Christian, the day that you said, to, said I, I will follow the Lord. Lord, you are my Savior and my Lord, and I, I am with you, and I follow you, and I accept the gifts of eternal life that you give me freely through your death on the cross. Your sins were covered. So why ask for forgiveness of them each day when we pray? Right? Again, it's not about actually needing forgiveness. If you forget to ask for forgiveness of sins on the day that you, you know, commit a sin, it's not like that sin's not forgiven because you weren't covered. Right? It's not the Catholic concept of confession. If it's unconfessed, it's unforgiven somehow. That's not how it works. Right? Everything that you have done will ever do is covered by the blood of Christ paid for on the cross through his suffering death and his resurrection. And death is destroyed once and for all right? The punishment that killed him brought us peace. However, our daily need, our daily prayer for forgiveness is again about closeness with God, right? Sin separates us from the Father, 
The more we walk into sinfulness, the more we walk away from intimacy with the Lord. And so the daily prayer is, is a reminder to us to draw near to Him, not to run far from Him. Right? And so He asks us to pray in that way so that we might draw near to the Lord. And the final line that we get is to lead us not into temptation, and that follows the same trajectory. It goes without saying, but obviously God is not in the habit of leading us into temptation. It's a reminder to have clear eyes and to look to Him as we walk through the tempting world. And by the way, when we talk about forgiveness, He then tells us that we also have to extend that forgiveness out. Right? Part of the practice of accepting grace is to pass it on. Right? And so, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and we're reminded of it every day so that we can be reminded to extend that forgiveness out beyond ourselves to those who wrong us. Right? Because what is the point of God's grace being received in our own life if it doesn't then go forth to the people that are around us, no matter how much they have wronged us? Right? That's why forgiveness of others to the Christian is of such immense importance. There's a really good book, Forgiveness, by Tim Keller. If you, have, if you struggle with forgiveness and it's something that you want to dig into, I would recommend that you pick that up. It's just called Forgiveness by Tim Keller. Um, great, great, great resource. So this is all excellent prayer advice. And the brunt of this message really isn't about how we pray, though. Right? The, the thrust of, of chapter 11 has very little to do with just teaching us as people how to pray. That's the, the part we pick out. We love to look at the Lord's prayer, and it's important that we do that. But that's really not the, the kind of the, the climax of this, of this set of verses of 1 through 13. The climax is in this story that is very confusing that comes next and the resulting commands that God gives us. Um, and so the, the story we get is this parable, right? He gives us how do we pray, and then he gives us this weird parable about guests and neighbors. Here's essentially what's happening in this parable. There's a guy who's home at night, and a guest shows up at his house, somebody who's, who's respected, who he loves. You know, maybe you could think of it as you know, a missionary shows up at your house at night from one of the missionaries we support, maybe our Scotland church planners. It's, it's 11.30 p.m., and the doorbell rings, and they're at your house, and you bring him in. And, and they're starving, they're famished, and you don't have any food in your house. And so you, you run to your neighbor because it's so important that you care for, right? Because in, in Hebrew culture especially, hospitality was so important. There were protocols about how you treated guests and how you provided for them, and to not be able to provide the right way brought shame upon your family. And so it's a brother visiting another brother, and that brother has nothing to provide, and so he goes and he knocks on the door of a friend of a neighbor. He says, Joe, I need food. And Joe goes, we've been asleep for hours. My kids are asleep. What do you, what, no, what do you want from me? Right? And, and what he says is the shameless persistence of the guy knocking eventually gets that person who wasn't going to give him anything to relent and give so that he can provide for his guest. Right? That's really the parable. That's, that's it in a nutshell. And so then he, he tells them this kind of weird story only so then he can say in verse 8. Let's, let's kind of pull it up again real quick. Maybe. If we can. There we go. We'll start in verse, in verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever receives or asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he says this weird story. And then after he says it, he tells them to ask and to seek and to knock. And the comparison he gives is, look, who among you, what, what dad... Yeah, when their son asks for food, gives them a serpent, or when they ask for an egg, gives them a scorpion. And he says, look, if you humans who are, who are at the core of all things, at your heart of hearts evil, provide in this way for your children, how much more do you think the, the Father, the Heavenly Father, God of the universe, who loves you, who's perfect, who's not evil, will provide for his children? saying, if the, if the begrudging neighbor eventually gives in and gives him what he needs, how much more do you think I am going to give you what you need? Right. Here's, here's what he's telling us. The, the requests to ask and to seek and to knock are in this kind of perfect, this imperative that is ongoing. A better translation would be, keep asking and it'll be given to you. Keep seeking, and it will be found. Keep knocking, and the door will be eventually open to you. Right? I don't know about you, my, my kids ask me for things all the time. Half of our interactions are just them asking me for stuff, and they ask me for the same stuff over and over again, right? Like when, when my son wants a treat, uh, there are 54 requests for that same treat, right? I'm like, just give me a second. I am in the middle of doing something. Can I have it yet? Well, give me a second. I got to ask your mom if she already gave you. Said, well, can I have it yet? Can I have it yet? And eventually, here's what every parent has done at some point in their life. If you ask me one more time, what's the answer going to be? No. no. You take nothing away from the sermon today. No. Right? We do that as parents because we tire of our children asking us for stuff. Here's the key to take away from today. Two things. Number one, your father never, ever tires, ever tires of you asking him for stuff, right? He doesn't get sick of you asking. You can keep praying to God and seeking the things that you need over and over again to pray for the things that Jesus teaches us to pray. God doesn't get annoyed with our questions, He's absolutely not like that. God in this passage, when he says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, he's saying, listen, pester me. Never stop bugging me with your life. You can't run me out of patience. You're not going to annoy me. Right? I'm here to listen and I'm here to hear you. Right? As a matter of fact, the, the requests of ask and seek and knock are building upon each other. Right? Because to ask is kind of the lowest form of the totem pole here. Right? There's not that much to the idea of asking. But seeking is asking with action. You're not just asking for something, you're seeking it out. You're getting off your feet and you're moving and you're doing something. And knocking, and can keep knocking, is asking with action and persistence. They're meant to be very, that, that phrase, ask, that whole thing of ask and you shall receive, you know, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. That's a very specific kind of phraseology and vocabulary that Jesus uses here to imply that, look, keep bugging, 
Keep praying, keep pestering, keep going over and over again to the Lord each day anew. Ask for things a thousand times. Keep going. He doesn't get tired of you asking, right? And the second thing we need to understand is that God always answers. It might not be the answer you want, but God always answers, right? And that's where we go back to the your kingdom come. Part of prayer life is to learn to submit to God's plan over and above our own. So we keep asking, we keep seeking, and we keep knocking. And God's answer is going to be yes, no, or later, depending on what it is that we ask for. But something happens when we do that, when we persistently daily pray for our needs to be met, for the Lord to move, even when it seems like it's been 10 years and he's not answering the request. What happens is we start to learn about who God is and what it is that he's doing. We learn about our Lord. You can discover God's plan by the prayers that he answers yes and the prayers that he answers no and the prayers that he answers later. Do you realize the more you pray and the more answers you receive, the more you learn about who God is and what he's doing in your life. And eventually what happens is our prayers start to shift, right? We start to ask for different things because we start to learn the patterns of the Lord in our life. We start to learn what it is that he says yes, what it is he says no, and what it is he says wait to. And our prayers begin to change. And the Lord seems to answer prayer more. Not because he's decided today to answer your prayers more, but because your prayers more and more line up with who he is and what he has for you in his kingdom. Right? Prayer is the primary way that we sanctify and become more like Christ. It's one of the biggest ways that God uses to grow us into his likeness. And the beauty is that God is not a God who wants to say no. He's not the dad who just sits up in heaven and really enjoys saying no to you. God is a God of yes. God wants what's best and good for you. He wants to be able to shape your heart. The goal of sanctification right, that we'll never get to in this life, but we keep growing in and aspiring to, is that we get to a point where our, our requests, the things that we desire, are so in line with the things that the Lord desires that every prayer we ever pray is answered yes. Not because God just gives us what we want, like a cosmic lottery, but because our, our mind and our will is submitted to the Father's will. That's what heaven is. Do you realize in heaven, everything you ever ask for is yes? There's not a single request in heaven that is answered no. Because sin is removed, and all the things we ask for are the things that are after God's heart, because we are perfectly after God's heart. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus and come soon. Because in heaven, everything you ask for, God says, yep, here you go. Because everything you ask for is what God would want you to have, because you're aligned with him and walking with him. Right? My hope and prayer is that as you walk away from this, is that you would be encouraged to pursue a deeper life of prayer. That this would shape a little bit how you pray, to whom you pray, and how frequently you pray. And that through that prayer, you might grow more and more into the likeness of Christ, both individually in this room and all of us together as, as a church. That we might be after his heart. That whether it's you in your house or our leaders in this church starting to ask questions of what does God want us to do, when we start to pray things, they align more and more with the vision that God has for, for our hearts and for this place. 
That's what he's saying here. I am a God of yes. Let me teach you what I want to say yes to. I'll give you a hint. It's better than anything you could ever want. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. In a world that is out for itself, that seeks to destroy, you are a God who says yes to your people. When we sinned against you and failed to live up to your standards, you said, yes, I will step in. You said, yes, I have a plan. You said, yes, I will redeem my people. You said, yes, I love them. You said, yes, I will pay for their sins, even though they don't deserve it. And yes, I will once again flourish all people under my holy order world that I created. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be more and more submissive to that will. We pray that as the weeks and the months go on, that the things we ask for might line up more and more with the things that you want us to ask for so that you get to say yes the way you love to do. Be with us this week. Shape us in our hearts. Move us in the directions you want us to go. When we have to hear no or later to the things that we ask for, give us patience and a steady hand and a heart after you. Please don't deal harshly with us, but tenderly the way a father does and the way you promised to. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen. amen.